episode 94 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. We're a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. Hello, I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. It is the 20th of May 2020 here in Norwich, which means it is day three of our City of Literature week. It is. We're in the thick of it. We're in City of Literature celebrations. Yeah, so what have we had so far? On Monday, we had a delicate sight, which was a multimedia extravaganza. We did. And yesterday, we had our first tea time read from Ella P. Wakatama, which was all about some of the walks that she's been taking part in around South London and the time that she spent sort of thinking about the past and imagining what the future might hold. And today, we have a very special podcast called Portrait of an Artist and Writer. And this is a podcast featuring Sarah Baum and Elizabeth McNeil, chaired by Jen McDerrah. And just like some of the other stuff we are doing, this was an event that was supposed to happen here in Norwich, but obviously can't happen for the usual of reasons. So instead, we have pulled them all together for a very special podcast. Yeah, so uh, Sarah and Elizabeth came together to talk about writing, of course, but also about sculpture and ceramics and making different types of art and what it means to create and live as an artist. Sarah is a Goldsmith Prize shortlisted writer. She's known for her books uh, Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither, and she recently released her debut non-fiction book, Handiwork. Uh, she's also a sculptor. And Elizabeth released her Sunday Times bestselling novel, The Doll Factory, very recently. And she is a ceramicist. So we brought these guys together in conversation with Jen McDera to talk about the process of making and reflections on isolation, motivation, nature, beauty. There's a lot about bird migration in Sarah's book. It's just a really lovely conversation, actually. And they spent some time reading some of their favourite passages from each other's work. Yeah, just sort of celebrating what it means to be an artist, what it means to be an artist right now in this current climate. Yeah, there's an amazing bit at the end of the podcast. I do listen all the way through to the end about how cats very nearly destroyed the doll factory before it even got published. And there's a cat in the background, I think. Was it Jen? No, I don't think it was Jane's cat. I think it's Sarah's cat. There is a few points you can hear a really a really nice purring in the background because the cat's on her lap. I really liked that as some uh, added atmosphere. Yeah, see how many times you can hear a cat in the background. <laughs> Just before we dive in, uh, I should note that the audio quality on some of this podcast is a little bit variable due to the various challenges of running this kind of thing whilst we're all in lockdown from different houses with different kinds of internet connections. But regardless of that, it's a fascinating conversation. So here is Jen to introduce. Welcome to Portrait of the Writer and Artist with Sarah Baum and Elizabeth McNeil. I'm Jen McDerrah, a researcher and tutor at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. We're speaking today as part of the Norfolk and Norwich Festival that ought to have been taking place at the end of the month. Sadly, we can't be together in person but thanks to the National Centre for Writing, we're able to record our conversation as a podcast. The description for this event was penned long before the lockdown, and yet it has suddenly become almost universally relevant. Reflections on isolation, motivation, nature and beauty. We'll be exploring what it means to create and live as an artist with two authors who are perfect guides. Sarah Baum is a sculptor and award-winning novelist. She describes her debut non-fiction book, Handiwork, as a love child of my art and writing practices. Charting the connection between handicraft and bird migration, as well as simply the account of a year spent making hundreds of small painted objects in an isolated house, 
Handiwork is published by Tramp Press. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Jen. It's so lovely to be here, where I've been anyway, um, but to, <laughs> to be able to have the conversation anyway. And Elizabeth McNeil is a ceramicist and writer. Her Sunday Times best-selling novel, The Doll Factory, is a story of painting, collecting, love, obsession and possession, published by Picador. The opening chapters of the novel were written while undertaking the Masters in Creative Writing here at UEA. Where are you now, Elizabeth, and how is it there? I am in my in my sort of little writing cupboard, um, looking out over the garden. It's all very nice outside. But um, yeah, I just wish I were in, in Norwich. Um, but alas, another time perhaps. <laughs> I wish we could all be together. Norwich is very sunny today. Um, in our house, we've moved everything around about five times to try and make the place more interesting. And I was thinking earlier that I wish we'd had handiwork. It could have been a roadmap for someone wanting to re-centre their home as a house of industry, as you put it, Sarah. Why did you write handiwork? Well, um, it's funny, but it's the first book I didn't really mean to write, um, in the sense that after I finished my second novel, which is also a kind of about an artist, but it's fiction, it's a novel, um, I, I really didn't feel compelled to write anymore or to kind of continue to follow the conventional career path of a writer, you know, um, I guess uh, applying for fellowships or um, teaching or doing book reviews or whatever that means. Um, I didn't feel like that. I felt compelled to work with my hands again. Um, now, like this didn't come from nowhere because I studied, I went to art school um, as opposed to studying writing. Um, and I I had always, I, I had spent several years trying desperately to only be a writer and to kind of suppress this urge to make things. And I had continued always to make things, but this returned to me around 2017 um, after my second novel came out. Um, and I was just spending more and more time um, <laughs> making and not writing. And I felt bad about it. And I, I, I suppose inevitably in order to justify the use of time to myself, um, as I was working um, on these series of small objects, and um, there are about three different series, none of them were the, the birds, even though that's, um, that's what everyone has understood from the book, which is, which is fine, it's, a, um, it's kind of relevant too. Um, but while I was writing that, I, uh, or sorry, while I was making them, I started to write notes to myself. And the catalyst really was um, a, a burgeoning interest in birds. Uh, I started to become really interested in bird migration specifically, or I just started to pay attention to birds in a way I hadn't before. And I started to, to see the two things as connected. Um, this insistence that I've always felt to work with my hands and this insistence that, that birds have to fly these great, you know, illogical distances, um, or you know, any any form of nature. I talk quite a bit about fish in the book in the book as well. Um, and then it was, you know, I, I fully believe that anything can anything can be connected if you look hard enough to find the connection. <laughs> um, but when I started to when I started to look, there seemed to be so many lovely little parallels, like the idea of flow and the idea of all the little small marks you make and all the little small flaps you make. And, um, and I started taking notes and then literally within the space of about six months, I had what was originally going to be an essay, but what I then realized was um, was too long really to be an essay. And I started to think maybe, just maybe this could be a tiny book. Mm, well, I'm really glad it is. Would you read something from it now, please? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm tempted to just read from the start because that sort of explains it neatly. Maybe I'll read a little bit. Um, from further along that talks about uh, this house that I'm in now and so it seems very relevant at the moment and um, on all the little sounds that surround me. 
um, and how it ties in kind of a little bit to my writing practice as well. This house of industry has, conversely, the potential to be magnificently silent. When the radio isn't playing or a podcast, when there aren't any cows in the facing field, when the wind drops and the rain stops. People are usually surprised when I tell them that I listen to talk radio as I write. I must then try to explain how I find magnificent silence to be almost aggressive, as a near noiselessness of writing is, for me, intimidating enough in itself. The cursor makes no sound as it weaves around the screen of the laptop. The tip of my index finger circling the touchpad is a whisper, the tap of a struck key scarcely louder, and then there are the hesitations. Most of the time, I play the radio so quietly that I can't decipher what the topic is anyway. I play it solely for the comradeship of a soft, sputtering stream of voice. At more onerous times, I allow myself a little extra volume. A topic of interest is an indulgence, a moment of release from the suspense of thinking. I hover over my inbox with the same intention. An indulgence makes it easier to continue, momentarily dispelling the preciousness of the thing that I am doing and the duress to do it with exactitude. There are no songbirds here. In the hinterland of this house of industry, or at least none that linger. When we first arrived, there was a busted feeder beside the concrete garden wall beneath the sycamore, and Mark, who was taller, hung up an identical but intact one on the lowest, thickest branch, and it lasted only a dry day or two before Southwesterly blew it down. For the first couple of weeks, we shifted the feeder about between the different points of the washing line and the tree, until the wind dislodged it for a final time, it cracked, like its predecessor, against the wall. The feeder had travelled with us from our former garden, where it had dangled from the nail in the cement at the back of the house for five years, attracting no, other, no, no attention from others in a passing chaffinch. And since then, I've convinced myself that songbirds will only successfully establish in gardens they recognise from collective memory, gardens their ancestors frequented in generations past. Instead of the chirp of feeding songbirds, ours is the cackle of far-off gulls. Afternoon, I am less in need of the comradeship of strangers' voices. In contrast to the near silence of the practice of writing, handiwork requires constant movement and generates its own soft, sputtering racket, like a summons, I sometimes think, like incantations of the meeting of material and tool. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you so much. They're both such beautifully immersing books which I'm so grateful for now. Reading them in tandem has been such a mighty pleasure. Um, the way you lay out handiwork, this whole page is dedicated to an image of a bird or a single sentence. The space it dedicates to, to reflection is a real gift at the moment, I find. Um, it reminds me slightly of Weather by Jenny Offill, which I've been reading recently. And um, they've been the only two books that I've been able to absorb since the beginning of lockdown, until the arrival of the doll factory on my doorstep which I rampage through all 372 pages of it really quickly. And I feel that I'm particularly reliant on books at the moment to immerse myself. Um, I never imagined I'd wish myself in 1850s London, and I am mm -hmm. finding that. So I was wondering if, Elizabeth, you would read some of yours so that we all have both of you in our heads before we go on. 
Yes, I'd love to. Um, and also, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, it was such a pleasure for me to just sit in the sun and read this astonishingly beautiful book and for it to articulate so many things which I I hadn't, you know, that, that, that sort of do concern me and also are my ways of thinking, but I just hadn't found the language to describe them. So thank you for that great gift, Sarah. It's been such a treat. Um, although unfortunately I've been reading it on a PD PDF and William Morris would be horrified. I need to need to buy a book, which is actually going to arrive in a couple of days. But anyway. I, I was reading I was reading it on the book too and on the PDF and it was really sad. I was really sad and then the book arrived today. So it feels like um, it's all happening in such an such an immediate moment. Yeah, it's very beautiful. Yeah, I even put it, put on Instagram. I was reading it and how much I was loving it. So many people wrote back saying how beautiful the book was was oh. as an object. So uh, <laughs> I have that treat in store for me when it lands on my on my uh, doormat tomorrow. But anyway, the doll factory. I'm unusually actually. I'm going to read from quite far through the book, um, a section which I've never read before. Um, but having read, you know, Sarah's beautiful book, it kind of lots of the things which I was describing here. Um, they they sort of. The book resonated with me it, um, in, in this particular area. It's where um, Iris goes to the Royal Academy for the first time and she sees a painting which Louis has made of her. So here goes. There is a roar of chatter, a thick haze of billowing smoke. Louis delves into his pocket for his pipe and chews the end. They enter the first room. Louis glances around him, first scanning at eye level and then above and below it. And Iris tries to join him, but her eye cannot settle. She has imagined this day for so long, picturing a neat row of pictures. But this, it is chaos, beautiful chaos. The walls are a patchwork of gilded frames from floor to ceiling. She can scarcely comprehend all the toil and labour that went into this room, tens, hundreds of years when all stacked in a single place. She tries to take in a picture of a Scottish burn, and she imagines each mix of pigment, each dab of the paintbrush. This is a room hiding careful consideration and ticking minds, all of which exist beneath these paintings, like the machinations of a clock behind its plain face. And then um, she goes on and she sees it. And then I just wanted to read the second part when she um, is reflecting on her own work, when she looks at the paintings of the return of the dove to the ark and Mariana. She imagines her own painting hanging there next to Louise. She has only just begun it, traced the contours of shade and light onto the hard white canvas, the curve of a bowl of strawberries, the vase bursting with flowers. This afternoon, she will add the first dabs of paint and she longs to return to her studio. There we go. Thank you. It's gorgeous. It really is. And um, something that struck me with both books is just the attention to detail and the rendering of those details is so... Um, it's so grand on, so on on the scale of the doll factory at times. And I wanted to ask you a bit about the process of how you pay attention. Um, there's a part in the doll factory uh, where Louis tells Iris to pay attention to their surroundings as they walk through the streets of London. He points to some icicles and says, you could think how you would compose them, what they could indicate. So I wanted to ask you how you pay such a close, close attention and capture the detail of what you notice. What's your process? Um, I, I'm not sure what my process is. It's, it's process is always something, something which is very difficult to unravel. But I think certainly I'm I, I'm always aware of objects, particularly maybe you know maybe I'm a materialistic person. Who knows? But I think that even ties into you know why I became a potter that I enjoyed the creation of objects and kind of the the bringing of things into the world. And uh, whenever I'm walking around, I'll 
pick things up and I'll look at them and you know and I and I enjoy that even you know in my desk on my desk I've got um a broken limpet shell which my mum gave me and that this this thing something lived in it once and it's got its own history but then it has the additional meaning of a gift that my mother gave me in a beach on on Gower and that the weight which objects can carry and the symbolic meaning is something which really interests me. Um, and I thought about this a lot when I was writing the Zoll Factory um, because, you know, that I wanted to write about the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and they have these um, incredible clutter-filled canvases where, you know, so many objects um, have symbol- carry such symbolic meanings like um, In Awakening Conscience by Holman Hunt. There's, a, there's a, a cat which is gripping a bird and the bird is trying to escape just at the moment that the woman in the painting is kind of realising that she wants her life to be a different one. And she can escape her her current situation. And so for me, I think I think partly the clutter-filled canvases is what drew me to the pre-Raphaelites in the first place. Um, and then when I was writing it, I was thinking a lot about these levels of symbols. And you know, even there's there's a character in the novel called Silas, and he's a collector of curiosities. Um, and there's the Great Exhibition, which was this huge museum of objects. And so really I think objects are so central to the to the book because they're so central to my life even though actually I have quite a clutter free house um it's not quite Marie Kondo though thanks <laughs> I love the attention to objects and in both books I think that's something that I was I've been thinking about and which we touched on when we were practicing with the tech yesterday that feeling that we need tangible right now while everything is so virtual all these talks where we were staring at the audio lines of each other on the screen rather than seeing each other's gestures and so on. It, it makes objects even more important, I think, at the moment. Um, there's a section of um, handiwork that I'd like to read, um, which, which draws attention to that, and I, I think might open up a little bit the difference between the environments in which you're both working, which I know people would be interested to hear about. So this is from uh, an episode uh, early on in the book. This is the station where each evening comes to an end. I spend its final three hours cross-legged on the sofa. The same cushion I use as a tray to eat my dinner off becomes a platform upon which to apply paint to a succession of small objects after dinner has been eaten. The television flickers and I listen to it. In most cases, a story can be followed from sound alone, but I glance up every now and again in order to identify speakers in order to maintain some kind of visual momentum through each program. I love that. And I love actually, Sarah, how it connects with what you were saying earlier about the radio and the comradeship of voices. It feels like you've got the objects in your space and then you also have a really clear soundscape that you rely on and that you work within. Could you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, I um I love what Elizabeth was saying there about um the sort of meaningful objects or the objects that have value, you know, to you, but it's entirely personal. Anyone else would look at it as a, a piece of crap. Um, but mm-hmm. to you it has that kind of um echo in it. And um and unlike her, like I live in a house full of crap. Um it's, <laughs> it's kind of it's ordered, but at the same I hate the idea that um I, I would love to own very little, you know. Um and to have that kind of clarity, to, to, to be without that kind of material baggage. And yet there's a larger part of me that can't, can't resist these little things that, um, that are in, for a second meaningful. And then usually the meaning is lost. <laughs> I, can't, I can't, sorry, I, I've gone slightly off topic, but in, um, in handiwork, there's a little piece 
um, just a very short page, I think, that's about uh, a photograph frame that my mum gave me after my dad died. And um, it was a collage of photographs. And after he died, she had gone, she'd walked around the garden and his shed and sort of gone up the road a bit. And then um, I write about my dad as a man who um, was a master of um, the scratch bit. So basically he could just make anything. He could make huge works of machinery with just his hands and a couple of things in the shed. Um, and he, uh, that was his material legacy. Um, and, uh, and she felt that it was her who brought my attention to this by composing this picture frame. And the, the frame was just, the pictures were things like the garden path or um, a cow trough you know, that, that he'd welded together and made for a neighbour or something like that. Um, or perhaps, you know, a piece of furniture that he'd made or just a gate or something like that. Um, but they were everywhere. Like, they very much make up the fabric of, of my, my home. Or, you know, the home, but um, my parents' home. And, uh, and we didn't, we overlooked them for years. You know, we didn't notice them until he was gone. Um, and that's, that kind of, you know, that plays back into what we were saying about, about meaningful objects. Um, but yeah, sorry, I can't remember. Was that was I answering the question at all? There, <laughs> you were saying some interesting things, and my mind wandered off. <laughs> I wanted to read that piece because I love it, but it was because of the um, the way that you described the way your objects alter throughout the day. So you use the same cushion to eat dinner, and then it becomes a platform for you to paint your objects on. And I think it really renders the space that you are you have created. Um, or has created itself around you in which you work. And this talk, um, the description of this talk was so much about process that I thought it was interesting, especially while people are spending so much time in their own homes, that you seem to be quite a master of, of, of making that space and shaping it. And I wanted to think about the, the versions of that that you each experience at the moment. Yeah, it's funny. It's partly economic, I think, that I... That I have all of these movable stations because we don't own the house. We live in this beautiful old farmhouse now, um, but it's rented and we're kind of lucky because it's cheap because the landlord and lady are just really nice. So it's partly because we don't like we don't have any bookshelves because we don't like to screw into the walls because we don't own the walls. You know, we don't paint everything. So everything. So I have all of these different stations, but they're always um, changing in accordance with what I'm doing, and nothing ever gets um, nailed down. Um, so there's an order, but it shifts all the time. Um, there's a lovely little video online that I watched Elizabeth of, um, of Elizabeth in her potting, uh, potter's studio. Um, and, um, and I loved the sense of clutter, but also the sense of order, um, that I've never quite managed to achieve myself. <laughs> yeah, I was really interested in Elizabeth's shop as well. I, I also noticed the, um, really unique rhythm of opening and closing the shop that you have. And I wondered if you make different choices throughout the rhythm of the year about which thing you're working on. Uh, that's an interesting question, actually. Um, I, I, I tend to put my writing first, mainly because that's what my ambition has... My ambition has always been to, to, to be a writer, um, and I tend to put my pottery around it. Um, before, before I became a writer, it's, you know, re reading, reading Sarah's book was so interesting, the idea of kind of amateur versus professional versus kind of meandering paths some people take like sort of salmon I think was the example and some birds migrating and sort of very direct very efficient ways of doing things and before I got the book deal my you know I, I was it was it was basically like a little factory I had out there it was a process um because it's very difficult to make money funnily enough um as a as a crafts person making things with your hands so I had to make so many things that I almost 
I, I made them beyond the point that I enjoyed making them. Um, I made them to pay the bills. I made them in order to carve out time for me to write, which is what I really wanted to do. But one of the advantages with, the, probably one of the biggest advantages for getting the book deal beyond, you know, the, the, the enormous relief of financial security um, was that it was then able to turn my pottery into what it had been at the very beginning, which is something which I can play around with and meander around and kind of find find my way a little bit more and experiment and it to turn into an art rather than a product, I think I suppose would be the, the distinction. And that means that, you know, I can make it completely on my terms. So if my writing's going slower than I hoped, then I don't need to open my shop for three, four months. Um, sorry, if it's going slower, I can, I can make more pots um, and I can open my shop often. Um, and then if, you know, times when my writing is really taking off, then I can I can just sort of silence it. Um, so yeah, that's that's really why I have the shop updates as they are. And I think my work my my work has improved immeasurably because I've had so much more time and freedom to to play as well as make. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I I really like the the quote that um, Sarah included at the beginning of Handiwork as well about amateurs by Stephen Knott that they have their own convoluted, inefficient and superfluous processes of production that reflect their subjectivity and freedom from the obligation to produce a defined output. Mm. I found it so helpful as a place to start in this book and it feels like a good thing, it's a good time to be an amateur at something. I wondered outside of the, um, the things that you're known for, writing and sculpting and ceramics, are you trying anything new at the moment, either of you? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, and and the, the worst thing for lockdown for me is that it has turned me back into a complete workaholic. And I find reassurance um, in Sarah's pieces, you know, about how all consuming and obsessive um, working on something creative can be, because that's exactly how I feel about it all right now. You know, I'm writing my second book. Um, I'm working in the studio till 10, 11 at night um, in the evenings. And I just... In in a way, it's it's productive and it's full throttle. But on the other hand, maybe I need to sort of create more spaces to actually reflect rather than it sort of being this monstrous thing which is consuming me because I can't leave my house any longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny thing about the time at the moment, isn't it? I, I wondered whether there's a moment in um, in the doll factory when Iris first has a chance to be in her studio alone. And I'm going to read it now because I'd like to hear what you both think about whether or not it chimes with your experience of, of this period of isolation. In his absence, she borrows some of his brushes and paints. And for the first two days, she enjoys the seclusion of working alone in her attic bedroom, the time she can dedicate to painting and drawing. She has never encountered such peace, just her and her work. On the third day, she craves company, longs for the hours to pass, to have somebody she can talk about, talk to about her painting, who will entertain her with an anecdote. On the fourth day, she writes to her sister and watches for a letter in return with a fretfulness she has never felt before. There is no response. Her solitude strikes her anew. Does this chime with your own experience of isolation, or is this something that is utterly imagined, Elizabeth? um in some ways in some ways I'd say it yeah it does chime with 
with my experience. I suppose that what I was what I was also getting at there, as well as her isolation, is her utter dependence on one man and the very kind of um, liminal position and very insecure position she would have occupied as being, you know, being a model as well as an artist. Um, and she was making no money at this point through her through her painting. So it was more about that utter insecurity and the loneliness really compounding all of these thoughts and fears. And certainly I found that in terms of isolation augmenting my fears and my worries, it certainly certainly has. I, I find myself kind of going over things a lot more than I than I did before because usually I see, you know, because writing and pottery, they're, they're, they're fairly anti-social as professions go. Um, so in order to stay sane, my really my coping strategy was to see a different friend every single evening. And without that, um, really my work can, can take over and it can start to, from it being something which is satisfying, it can start to kind of start shouting. And yeah, I do. I do find that the more time I spend alone, the more I need something to balance out that solitude. Mm. How about you, Sarah? Yeah, you know that passage more than um, resonating with this sort of idea of solitude has uh, resonated with me from my attitude towards my partner. <laughs> um, and I, I write about him anyway, or his presence is always there in the book. Um, because he's an artist too and we work in the same house and neither of us have real jobs we don't have children so we kind of spend a lot of time close to each other but then not necessarily together in a focused way um, and, but I always have that attitude when he's away it's like the first day you're like this is brilliant I have loads of time to myself and and you kind of you know and I watch Love Island on television and do all these things that I don't like <laughs> <laughs> but then after a day or two you start to go oh no hang on <laughs> it's getting boring now you get sick of yourself as well um uh so that really resonated but in in terms of like our lives are very unchanged by all of this but there's like an atmosphere that there wasn't before um and a knowledge that doesn't go away you know it's you wake up and everything is the same and then after a moment you remember that it's not there's a global pandemic um and of course we only have each other now you know it's uh, i keep uh, joking that you know he's he's the only other person in the universe now, which in a way you know he is. That's um, that's that our world has shrunk to how it's depicted in the book um, in a way. Um, but it's funny you were asking earlier about new things and like um, you described me as as a sculptor, but I tend to make like I've I've probably described myself as that at some point. So I'm not <laughs> I'm not pointing the finger now at all. But um, but I I very and the book is sort of about how I don't sit comfortably with any craft you know um I don't I'm very envious of Elizabeth having a solid skill like that you know and um, that you learn and that you perfect whereas because I went to art school and I went during a time in which um I, everything that the focus was completely on new media on video and sound um, and photography and the college that I went to was very very more focused on those things it's the National Film School now actually in Dublin um and so when I graduated, I felt I had lots of ideas, but nothing, nothing concrete. Um, and so it kind of, and so naturally I ended up being a writer, you know, it seemed like the logical skill in a way. Um, but I've spent all the years since sort of making up for that. And it's only now that I've sort of, I've found my, I've, I've found my style in a way, and it's come from borrowing from the, the materials from the tools and materials of amateur craft. Um, so, you know, I use mostly modeling clay and modeling plaster. Um, I do a lot of um, stitching, in fact. I do a lot of um, 
embroidery, but I always do try and do something strange, something more kind of like a contemporary art with it, if that makes sense. Um, so I'll push yeah. some, push some something, uh, something that's well, like for example, in the during this this period, I found myself doing a lot of um, sewing, um, but I'm not sewing anything representational. I am um, I'm sewing to use up a box of embroidery threads that my um, that my grandmother left me. And, uh, and I've been looking at them for ages and going, what will I do with this? I, you know, I need to, I need to cross stitch something magnificent in order to impress grandma, um, who's, uh, mm -hmm. who's in the nursing home. And the nursing homes have been in my head a lot lately because um, I'm not sure about in the UK, but we've had a lot of um, outbreaks of coronavirus in nursing homes, which has been devastating, obviously. Um, so she's been in my head, and so I, and then I just decided I'll just use up the threads. I'll just, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll stitch crosses until they're gone. <laughs> And and so and so in a way I haven't changed the things that I normally do, but that this sort of strange atmosphere, this knowledge of what's happening, has coloured my daily activities, has sort of twisted them in a way that it mightn't have otherwise. That's amazing. That sort of process to, for the sake of process, almost there to, to process what's happening. It is the same as what's happening with care homes. So there's a lot of concern here for that for the people who are there as well. Um, so I love that. Actually, that's really moved me. But I like that. I like that there's no, um, um, I hope you don't mind to say, not a particular ambition to it. Um, but the, the act of the process, it's, it's, it's kind of like prayer um, or something. I've been thinking about what both of you have been saying about um, the primacy of writing or, or maybe sort of something you said there about guilt, about not, um, not doing the writing and then wanting to go and do something else. And I wonder how writing gets to that position, you know, as, a, as the most important. I'm not sure I think it, but it seems to come up. I don't know if either of you wanted to say anything about it. I, 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 I don't know, actually. It's, this, is, this is why I'm enjoying this discussion so much, because it's challenging so much about what, what I think and how I approach my work. Um, but, yeah, I, I do definitely consider writing to be of greater significance and greater importance to me, and that's, that's always what I put first, and it's what I start the day with every day and it's where my ambitions have always lain whereas pottery was was sort of a mistake um because for me I find I think I find more more nuance in writing um that a sentence a sentence can be anything and you know that I, I suppose there are infinite possibilities too in pottery but my work is much more functional than Sarah's um which I I find is absolutely necessary for me being able to to do the two actually because writing writing feels so infinite sometimes and it feels so um sort of all-encompassing and I feel like I could take a book in absolutely any direction and the elation that I get through writing is unlike anything I feel you know in, in anything I've ever done before and but likewise on, on the other side of that there's real despondency some days where I really don't feel good enough and so I find it quite necessary to, to have pottery where I'm making something functional. And while I want it to look good, of course I do, um, it's all about, you know, the, the thinking about, you know, what, what's, what's the best handle to put on this that would make it comfiest to drink from, you know, that these are quite pedestrian thoughts. And my approach to it is, you know, is it watertight? Yes. Then I have succeeded and I have created a mug rather than, worrying too much about you know every single sentence or you know the, the the minutest details whereas you know with with a book it just takes it takes so long and it takes so much thought and energy and you know I always have so many 
stories kind of flying around my head whereas when I go to the pottery shed my mind sort of empties in a way which I need yeah yeah I love that can I agree heartily with them with the I mean (laughs) therapeutic is such an such a cliched way of putting it um but I love how you've described how and I get this as well even though I'm making art objects I I um very naturally make um, I gravitate towards the kind of objects that involve a lot of repetition so you know the first one is full of um full of intensity Mm. and I'm worried about whether it will work or um and but then after I've gotten one to work I I will literally just you know make a hundred I rarely make a series that is less than 100 (laughs) so then for ages I have that lovely the kind of comfort of just going to something and like you say just measuring out for me it's like measuring plaster or mixing colors or whatever the case may be and and I can switch off and I find that um and I find that very comforting and there's solace in that um and and but but unlike Elizabeth, um, for me writing was the mistake. <laughs> I was supposed <laughs> to be an artist. <laughs> I was supposed to stick at that, and it was out of a sense of despair, I think, because especially with um, with fine art, you're um, you're supposed to have all of these you know convoluted ideas. You're supposed to be able to write a, a master's thesis, you know, a, a, on the meaning of your work. And um, and I couldn't sort of I couldn't believe enough in the objects themselves that they would convey their own meaning. Um, and at the same time, all of the meaning that I was, uh, that I felt I was putting into their making, all of the care wasn't coming across. You know, people people just looked at things and thought that thought that I'd made it in five minutes, but it was just a pretty giggle. And uh, and so then that was what started me writing. I thought, well, you know, screw that. I'll I'll explain then. I'll tell you what it's about. You know? <laughs> and then I started by writing about writing about art and writing art criticism, and then. It got published quite easily, and so at a certain point, I thought, well, well, maybe I'll try fiction because that's what I like reading. That's such an interesting journey. Um, I can't tell that I would have known that from reading the books. One of the things I like so much, and I should officially thank you both for, is a, is a proper introduction to to talking about art. And I'm, I'm so not in that world, and I want to be. It occurs to me that I'd like to, to paint and to make more from having read the books. They merge so beautifully with craft and with descriptions and and with what a a painting can do or an object can do what it can represent that i i felt really inspired to go towards it so maybe that'll be my mistake i loved being immersed in that world um and being immersed in each painting even and um and i i like i love the way you you picked a few kind of details of their separate lives and sort of mashed them together you know so that there was truth and fiction in that um but I, but it's something about it's um, painters are so puritanical, um, and I miss that. I kind of feel like I have the sensibilities of a painter, but I've never been able to paint, and that's a constant source of regret. Um, this feels like a really nice moment to ask you: um, Have you both chosen a piece that you really love from each other's book um, that you could share with us? Because you know, this would be the moment when I sort of leant back a bit and, and put my mic down and, and tried to give you space. So. If you wanted to share and read what you've chosen from each other's books and, and then talk about each other, to it to each other, I will back off for a few minutes. It, it was an immense struggle. There were so many sections which I, you know, I, I circled. I even took photographs of the pages because they resonated so much with me. But I managed to I managed to choose just one, even though it was a very cruel task. Um, so shall I read it? Yes. Though there is no such thing as time devoid of obligation, there are periods of each day that I am forced to set aside from work, pendulous phases devoted to nothing greater than the general preservation of my body 
and the perpetuation of its functions. From sleep to sleep, an awful lot of time is suspended in this way, maybe even most of it. The time I spend unballing my socks in the morning, brushing my teeth, lifting mugs and bowls and plates out of cupboards and drawers and off hooks, chopping and frying and tossing vegetables, sending emails, washing my hands, putting mugs and bowls and plates back into cupboards and drawers and onto hooks, replying to emails, boiling my socks up again at night. Even when I am spending time with family, walking my dog, swimming in the sea, drinking with friends, even when I am enjoying time, especially when I am enjoying time, I perceive my real life to have stalled. Every hour, every minute, every second spent absent from a workstation is a class of flapping on the spot, of keeping in the air, but failing to propel forward. Um, and this, this particularly resonated with me because it touches on the obsession which I find in making, which I, which I sort of briefly mentioned earlier, sort of workaholic and finding that this lockdown is making me work harder than ever. And it was something too, which I tried to capture in the doll factory that this kind of um, the obsession which descends on all of the characters really, you know, Iris and her utter immersion in painting where she will give up everything to pursue this. And, you know, that when she's working in the doll shop, this is not what she wants to do. And all she wants to do is retreat to the cellar and paint. And, and also for Silas in his way that he is a craftsman making his strange taxidermy creatures um, where he his obsession with his work takes over to the extent that he starts to see everything through the lens of an object to be collected so yeah I just thought that those words were so beautiful and so perceptive and I feel happier for having experienced them so thank you Sarah it's funny that someone had only mentioned that um, passage to me recently and I think lots of people are feeling that now because they are just feeling that like now now they have lots of time um and what best should I do with it? You know, what should I do now? Should I be, you know, homeschooling my kids for a lot of people or um, or doing the garden or learning to bake bread or something or something? You know, they're kind of scrutinizing it because capitalist time has, has disappeared. And um, that's something I didn't write that much in the write about that much in the, the book itself. But um, Stephen Knott, who I quote quite a lot, um, the academic writes, writes a lot of in his um, book about amateur craft about capitalist time and about how sort of making useless stuff is a is a rebellion um of that and um and i think at the moment well i don't know i mean i'm kind of getting ahead of myself here but i'm wondering whether this period will challenge that you know and change the way we we perceive what's useful and, and what isn't um but anyway can i i chose a really kind of obvious for me passage <laughs> um because it's to do with birds but i also and um, there's a very short chapter towards the end called pigeon um, Elizabeth will know, of course, Im immediately. Um, but it, my question is sort of, I have huge admiration for a lofty historical novel because I know it's not something I would ever be able to do. Um, and I think the craftsmanship is kind of here in um, this passage. It's a, it's kind of, a, it's a memory. And uh, Iris uh, has seen this. She's remembering this um, this very colourful bird that she used to see. Um, that was in a cage and um, I'll just read the, the paragraph very quickly and then I'll ask my question. <laughs> um, she imagined it would soar into the sky, a brightly coloured pigeon like a miniature peacock. She pictured it settling amongst the dull greys of its species, the rapture with which it would be greeted. It hadn't occurred to her that, that the paint glued its feathers together, preventing it from spreading its wings. It waddled into the street, its neck jerking with each step. 
and then of course it gets hit by a cart. <laughs> God, like everything in the book. <laughs> but that, and that, that's just it. I mean, I thought it was a beautiful detail. Um, but also what I liked about it was um, how it sort of represented the slow weave of meaning. Like, you know, this pigeon is very much um, representative. It's, it's symbolic of everyone's condition in the book. They're all trapped in some way and they don't fully realize it. Um, and and I wondered how, like, uh, that takes an awful lot of craftsmanship, getting all of those. And that, that was just one of many small details that, that had a bigger symbolism um, that you could easily brush over, um, but looked at closely. Um, you know, it, it, it corresponds to, to every, to the, to the main plot of the book. And I wondered how much you were even aware of that, um, Elizabeth. Like, does that write itself or do you labor over getting all of those details to, to sync with each other? I'd say it was a bit of both. Um, and I'm really glad you noticed that because, yeah, it, uh, earlier in the book too, when Iris is just sort of finding her way as an artist, she also looks at a, a bird which is kind of hopping with oiled feathers. And, you know, that there's that, that's kind of the image of constrained freedom, um, curtailed freedom, I guess, too. Um, so I, I think some, some of the way I, the way I see writing a book is I actually see it like doing a painting. And I used to paint when I was a teenager. And I mean, I hope this doesn't sound pretentious, but I see like the first draft almost just like getting the outline done. And then with each subsequent draft, it's kind of a, just a case of, you know, filling in that detail and every single draft sort of going into a lower level of detail. And um, I think, I think that detail came a little bit later. I think I was, I, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what triggered that thought, but I do think in a very um, imagery heavy way, I think. And I, you know, sometimes it can almost be too convenient that the images which I can, put in they're almost used to in a way which is too heavy-handed but um a lot of the time it is unconscious or things occur to me when I am writing but for the most part it might be something you know I've got I've got a notes thing on my iPhone where I just scribble down absolutely anything which occurs to me and then it will be a case of kind of weaving it in at a later draft um which I think it's, it's the same for lots of authors that you know it's just a case of everything building and more and more occurring to you as you go yeah I, I touched on that at the beginning when I said that you can kind of things can seem connect you can choose a handful of arbitrary things and then if you think about them for long enough they become connected mm. and and it's actually you know with with my second novel the issue which I I've had in writing it um, was that I was concentrating too much on those tiny details concentrating too much on theme and too little on story so in my first draft, it just kind of ended up being these kind of piled images, which to me meant something, but the story wasn't actually doing enough. So uh, it, it, for me, that almost needs to come later. And I had to keep, you know, when, I, when I've been writing the second draft, I've been like, that, that isn't important, or maybe I'll weave it in. But, you know, what are the characters doing? and Why are they moving? And, you know, just keeping an eye on plot. Because I do, I do like writing plot. You know, I know that that seems to be a curse word. Um, around some writers but for me I, I I like to keep a reader engaged and pulled into a story. It was a fantastic book on both accounts I found Elizabeth. I'm, I wrote a tweet to sort of ready everyone for this event that I was reading it and I had a moment where I genuinely thought I don't care what the doll factory is about it's, it's written so well and then only pages later I thought I'm obsessed with the plot like actually obsessed with the oh. plot and I oh, wanted to thank ask you. you. <laughs> I really am, but uh, I wanted to ask you um, 
about Albi. I've read somewhere yes. that he didn't, he wasn't always intended to be drawn in such detail as you were saying there. And for me, he's the greatest loss. His yeah, loss is it, the greatest loss. So I was interested in that. I was so glad he was drawn so in such detail. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, yeah, in my very first workshop at UEA, I, I um, not my very first workshop, my very first workshop where I was sharing the doll factory. And it came to me, you know, I, I didn't start writing it until almost at the end of the course. So um, I was very lucky that I had one workshop on it. And, you know, and the, the, you know, it just it began as the doll factory does where Silas is sitting in his workshop and a little boy comes along and he brings him a specimen, which Silas thinks is going to be the greatest thing. And then, of course, you know, there's that collector's oh, nothing is ever enough and they're always building towards something more and that kind of was the representation of that. And then the class was like, um, okay, so this this boy, um, who is he? What's going to happen? I was like, oh, no, no, his his function's complete. He's handed over the, the, the thing and that's it. They were like, no, we want more of this boy. Who is he? Tell us about him. Um, and then I started writing a chapter from his perspective and I realised actually how integral he was to the book. Um, because he's even a sewer, and I described him at one point as a little thread stitching the throng together. And I see him in that way, I suppose, as kind of being able to see Silas clearly for what he is. Um, and, yeah, just really linking Iris and Silas, because they Iris is unaware of Silas's kind of creepy attention on her for most of the book, Um as well as the fact that he portrays so much about the different levels of London. And, you know, I think most Victorian London books do want to, or at least I certainly wanted to look at the different, the very stratified society and the different levels and ambitions within it. Hmm. It definitely comes through. Um, I wanted to ask you both. I don't, it feels like this connects, but I'm not quite sure. Let's see if it comes through. Um, <laughs> it's about, it's about dreams. Um, about the way different people are foregrounded in dreams. I don't know about either of you, but I'm dreaming in a very vivid and sort of timeless way at the moment. Um, people from my school years, like 15, 20 years ago, seem as real and as relevant and are coming up. I feel like their time is quite boundless and it's affecting my subconscious. And when I was reading The Door Factory, I was thinking, Silas, what did I, I had a thought that we mistake our dreams for people. And sometimes we mistake people for our dreams, and Iris, Silas fantasizes that Iris is his friend, and Iris dreams of being an artist, and it's hard to tell if she's fallen in love with Louis or art at one point. Mm. And so I kind of want to, I mean, we're going to have to stop at some point, so I kind of have to lift us out of the text with some sort of looping great question about things and see if we can we can bring this, this discussion to a close. But I wanted to ask you about your whether your dreams have changed, your your waking and sleeping dreams, and and the, the people uh, the people who people your imaginations at the moment and your writing are they different by affected by this time or not yes <laughs> I've actually heard them talking <laughs> about this on the radio even that like this is a phenomena that people um, it has changed the way we dream um, and and our dreams are much more lucid than they perhaps would have been um, but I find like my dreams are almost uh, they sort of tend to follow the same trajectory. So the plot is sort of similar to how, how a dream normally might be. But then they suddenly become terrifying. And they'll become terrifying because of something very benign, such as I find myself in a crowded space. And for a second, you're like, oh, hang on, I'm just in a crowd. And then you go, oh, no, hang on, I can't be in a crowd. I can't be in a crowd. 
<coughs> and then someone starts coughing in the distance, you know. Um, and then that will sort of twist the dream into something weirder, darker, because, you know, because you re remember um, why you're, you're dreaming that. Um, that told, I didn't, I never expected you to ask about that, Jen, but. <laughs> It just—it felt like it came out of nowhere. But what I, what I was thinking about, and bear with me for this, because you know it's been some time. But it's—it was the fact that once you receive a book, like the way that I read *The Doll Factory*, Albie was such a clear—he was the character that I followed through the novel. And it's so strange to imagine that he could have had a background part. Um, and I was just—I just feel that my own um, arrangement of people around me in real life now has changed so much. And like you were both saying about having friends to talk to in the evening or having your partner there all the time as your universe in a sudden way. It's strange how we can just muddle with that, <clears throat> excuse me, it, how we can muddle with that in our heads and how you can muddle with that on the page and just change a whole world by just changing the placement of the people. That's funny. I have a theory that I'm, like, I rarely seem to dream about my partner, like he's not in my dreams that much. And I think this can only surely be my subconscious um, sort of you, you dream about the people who you're slightly worried about or who 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 you have unfinished business with, if that makes sense. Um, like I have a friend from childhood who I dream about repeatedly, even though we haven't seen each other, been in contact for years. But I have a sense that I did her wrong when we were children. Well, I know I did her wrong, but anyway, that's a whole other story. And so she, she remains in my on my conscience and I dream about her over and over. Whereas I never need, need to dream about Mark because like, you know, I'm not worried about him. He's here. He's right next to me. <laughs> I see him all the time. I always know the exact state of affairs. So that's slightly off topic. But um, but I just I thought of it when you were talking. It doesn't feel off topic. It feels like a lot of people are mentioning sort of unresolved traumas and difficult things are coming into this space because this space is quite unlike any other space that we've been in. And it seems slightly borderless in that way yeah and, and I, I find myself kind of craving craving kind of even more the domestic that I've already got than than I've already got which is kind of strange because I thought that I'd be craving freedoms but you know sort of almost like you know starting a family or you know moving to a very small and secluded house in the middle of a forest which is yeah which surprises me in a way when whereas I'd have thought that I'd be like, oh, festivals or, you know, let's let's go traveling. But I find that my not, my waking dreams have kind of, I don't know, they've almost narrowed. Um, and so too in my pottery, am I making jewellery? So I'm making smaller things, tiny things, as if kind of my whole world has shrunk and I don't know what to do apart from make the tiniest little things which barely even cover a kiln firing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was going to my next question really was going to be how has what you're making changed but I think you've answered it there well that, and I have something similar because um this is it's a project for a gallery but um it, it kind of corresponds to an earlier project but I'm obsessed with souvenirs and the making of souvenirs um and how souvenirs um like for example with plates I've collected souvenirs plates for years and um they have such a such a, a kind of a potted um version of an experience or a place you know I love the way we just have a kangaroo for Australia and or you know you have a nice shamrock for Ireland or whatever, whatever the case may be and it's such a it's such a neat um you know false view of a place really but I'm really interested in those kind of kinds of representation um but I find myself at the moment I'm making a series of little figurines of the house where I live 
And I thought, what else can I do this summer? There's nothing else I can do. I won't be going anywhere. Um, and I was interested in the idea of what a souvenir becomes when it's a souvenir of home, essentially, souvenirs of here. Um, so I'm making the same, mm. the same little structure over and over again with very little variation. Um, you know, the, the colors vary because the light varies. Um, and it's on a little grass mound and the grass varies, but, um, but that will be all that changes. Oh, that's gorgeous. I feel quite inspired to do repetition. I think that would be something that would help me in this time. Thank you. Yeah, re repetition's wonderful. I wholeheartedly recommend it. Wow, yeah, I don't think that's in my in my practice at all. Is there anything else of that kind that you would recommend? Because it seems like both of you are quite used to uh, moderating and managing time and space in a way that other people might not be used to, and now they have this space. Well, I don't know how you're faring in the UK, but we have a massive um, flower shortage in Ireland at the moment because everyone is baking. <laughs> we, we, we've got that too, but uh, apparently the issue is with bagging. This is very boring, but the issue is about the bags rather than the actual supply. So my husband ordered, you can buy large quantities of flour. So we've currently got 800 grams of yeast and 16 kilos of bread flour. So uh, we're doing all right. We're, we're never going to need to buy another loaf of bread ever again. We've got our large sack of flour. So. And you've got many large ovens as well, haven't you? <laughs> yes, I know, exactly. I can, oh my goodness, I can make a kiln-sized loaf. Or you could make lot, 100 tiny loaves. I think that would be the outcome yeah. of this particular conversation. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, actually. No Guinness Book of Records for me. <laughs> um, I think for, for the end of this conversation, I had one easy question for each of you that is much more selfish and something that I just wanted to know the answer to, if you will just humour me. Elizabeth, did Guinevere really scratch up that that painting? I felt sure it was Louis, jealous or protective, or even another of the PRB. Could you just set my mind at that, that You know, the number of people who've asked me that, um, and I really did intend it to be the wombat, but the thing, the thing which I like about writing and being a writer is everything, as soon as it's published, that's my the end of my control over it. So you can think whatever you like. It's just, I think it's a really excellent part of, of the book because for a moment you mistrust what actually comes to be love. Um, but it's really important that you are, for me, it was a really important part of reading it that I thought, has he scuppered her hopes and is this all a lie? Mm -hmm. uh, and and that, that does matter as a, as a possibility, I think, in the narrative. And I loved it. And especially that it was a wombat. I just so love that you got a wombat <laughs> right into the heart of the, of the mix. And the, the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, they loved, they, they, they were obsessed with wombats. Rossetti had a pet wombat called Top. Um, and Christina wrote lots of poetry about wombats. You know, the, the best line ever is, a wombat prowled, obtuse and furry, which is in uh, Goblin Market. But I, I, I think that probably came from the fact that actually my cats managed to d delete, um, completely delete um, 5,000 words, the first 5,000 words of the Doll Factory. Um, they managed to, delete the words and then press and then they managed to kind of somehow save close the document and save the changes so I couldn't get them back it was absolutely astonishing just just the random interaction between you know pause and my keyboard and that for me was the the making of the book because those words were rambling and they were going in a direction which would have been wrong and even though I was absolutely furious it actually my, my book was immeasurably better for it and I don't think it would have even been published if I'd gone down the route it was going down so it was a necessary part of the process so I think maybe that was where kind of an interfering pet came from 
That's fantastic news. I think to everyone working from home with their dogs and cats that won't leave their computers alone, everyone will now be hoping to, to pen something extra special because of them. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask Sarah, you say in your book, I've always felt a terrible responsibility for time. How's that panning out for you? <laughs> <laughs> and You know, I, I, time, it's very disabling for us at the moment. Um, it's funny, like I've, uh, Mark and I have commented to each other that um, really it feels a bit as if the last five or six years of our life, we've just been setting it up. Um, specifically in order to be in a good position when a pandemic arrives. Um, you know, in this, like, we live in a lovely place. We're, we're within 2K from the sea, and 2K is kind of about as far as we're allowed to go at the moment. Um, we don't have a lot of I was laughing at them. Um, I think maybe in the UK, you're, if they're thinking about bringing in this thing where you have, like, 10, you're allowed to have 10 people within your sort of immediate unit that you're allowed to see. And, like, Jesus, between the two of us, we could even muster up 10 people. <laughs> so... So but at the time wise, it's funny, like in a way I'm busier at the moment because I have a book out and, you know, I'm doing doing things like this and um, and there's more sort of emails and stuff coming in. Um, uh, but it is funny. It's it. I tend to do a million small things a day um, and I feel so it's very hard to feel productive. Um, like I suppose I'm disciplined in the sense that I always do a little bit of everything. But I feel not prolific because it's so slow for anything to actually gather momentum and come to the end, you know. Um, I think only by virtue of the fact that all I do in life is channeled towards art projects of some kind. Um, and because I have all of my time to, to, to put into that, then, then eventually I make progress. Um, but yeah, so the relationship to time is, is okay because my life was sort of like this anyway, to be honest. I'm worried about the, the next phase. Um, when uh, when things start opening up again, I suppose um, at, at the moment it's weird because we it's you know you're it, we have no choice about what we're doing. We just have to continue to make the best of the way things are. Um, but it, things will get stranger and, and dicier the further this goes on. Yeah, I feel I feel more concerned about the next part when there's more free choice and we have to work out between us as individuals whether we're comfortable opening our lives back up again and, and at what at what cost and um, I think it will be a strange time yeah yeah precisely I feel the same um when the the choice will return to us about whether we're going and doing things like events and literary festivals or not um for the end of our podcast I'd like to ask you both to think about something but you don't have to answer now um, but I'm going to ask you to send me send me your answers to share with listeners afterwards. I mentioned it yesterday, um, and I've adapted it a little bit to suit, um, so we don't all have to paint a picture. That was a slightly ambitious dream. Um, but the, the Doll Factory ends with a painting by Iris, and it features the important figures in her life, and she paints objects or mirrors to represent those who can't be there. Um, I really love that this is how you chose to end the novel, Elizabeth, and I think it gives a real primacy to art, and expression over marriage and other structures. Um, and I wondered uh, if you were to make a scene uh, or paint a scene to reflect your experience of this particular solitude, uh, what objects would you use to represent anyone not currently in the frame? Um, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put the same question out on Twitter, and I and I would love it if you would have a think about who would be featured in that in that frame or in that picture. Uh, as figures and what or who would be represented as objects and what would those objects be? 
Are you happy to do that? Yeah, or, or I can I can even answer now if, if you like. Would you like just, to just some that? ideas? As a prompt, that'd be yeah. fantastic. Would... It's kind of like the Q&A that can't happen because we can't have the event, but I just wanted to join to listeners if they, yeah. they'd like to get involved. Because usually if I mull over things, um, it won't be any... At least now, I, if it's really rubbish, then I can just blame it on not having thought about it for very long. <laughs> Rather yeah, than the good. mounting pressure of this being, you know, 48 hours worth of thinking. <laughs> so, um, so, so I would say that, of course, only only my husband and potentially my cats, if I've forgiven them for the, for the scene-deleting incident, um, <laughs> would be able to be featured in it because... There's really the only presences in my life and who I see at the moment. Um, I also sort of think it would be quite um, quite cluttered because my life just feels it would be a very small but very cluttered room, which is how my life feels. And um, maybe there'd be mirrors sort of reflecting how inward focused everything was. But given we were talking earlier about the kind of yeah objects, their symbolic importance, and you were talking, Sarah, about the the picture frame. For me, I, you know, my mother would have to be the limpet shell. I'm not sure if she'd like to be a broken limpet shell, but unfortunately that's... Um, she did it to herself when she gave me that that gift on Gower Beach. Um, and, yeah, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe others would be sort of little books they've given me or something like that, because I love, I love being gifted books. And then I sort of not only have the beautiful physical object and the story which I've discovered within it, but then the story of who gave it to me, so... Yes, books, Olympic shell, and my husband to my cats. <laughs> Lovely. So do you want to answer now, or would you like some time? I, uh, what means a lot to me at the moment is um, I, I mentioned that we're close to the sea, and we have a very wobbly sea view. Um, and this is partly why we don't, we don't own the house where we live, because um, if you have a sea view in this part of the world, it's like an extra 100 grand on the house price or something. So we're very lucky to have to rent someone else's sea view. Um, but it's, it's very small. There's kind of a, a V of fields and then a little sort of uh, semicircle um, of sea in the distance. And on very misty days, you can't see it at all. And it's very often misty because we get a lot of kind of um, weather systems from the Atlantic. Um, but I'm always I'm looking out at that at the moment and feeling how lucky I am. I think so many people interestingly crave the, the coast, um, and it's it's an Irish thing, but probably also an English thing because we're island nations. Um, everyone, and and if you're not within you know within a, a reasonable distance um, here anyway, then you're not allowed to travel um, to go for a walk even. Um, and I hear people sort of lamenting this, and I, I feel very lucky to have that. Um, yeah, and then yeah, the the, the cows and the dogs. <laughs> Um, the dogs, which have been very good, they've remained utterly quiet here at my feast and n- not barked at any rabbit. Oh, I love that they've been here. The pets have been very present. Um, I, I did worry that you, you'd hear my cat. Your, yeah, I heard your cat. <laughs> did you? I'm sorry, he's been whining at the door the whole time, and I've sort of been trying to text my husband, like, take the cat away. <laughs> We all know that was a tricksy customer. I think that's, that's it's so funny that so your dogs are at your feet and, and my dog is outside in the van because I knew that he wouldn't be able to cope with this level of interaction. And then the cat's just been actually talking on the podcast. What, what a lovely... <laughs> I think that's a really lovely place to end it. Oh, thank you so much for, for having us, for having me. Um, it's uh, uh, it's lovely to be able to do this without the anxiety of travel. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's been such a special hour for me. I've enjoyed it immensely. So thank you so much for, yeah, for arranging it in different circumstances from what we originally envisaged. 
Well, that's thanks to the Writers' Centre staff, certainly. But I would just like to heartily recommend that everyone buy Handiwork and The Doll Factory, as I think you can tell from this conversation that they will hold your attention and, and really give you something else to think about in these trying times. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Sarah, Elizabeth and Jen for taking part in this chat. If you have questions or want to get in touch, or indeed want to send in your responses to Jen's writing prompt at the end there, you can message us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can find our page on Facebook, and you can find out about everything else we do over at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And you can email us at info at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. So we're only halfway through our City of Literature week and there's lots more still to come. Uh, Steph, what have we got to look forward to? Uh, We've got lots more tea time reads coming up 3pm every day. We've got Owen Shear's selection of 10 inspiring writers asking the questions that will shape our future as part of the International Literature Showcase, and that's on Saturday morning. And we've also got an at-home readathon on Saturday afternoon from three o'clock, so you can join us for Page Against the Machine in partnership with the Book Hive. Grab a book, grab a cool drink, turn off your phone, do some reading in the sunshine, and then share your photos with us online. Very nice. And we also have the ongoing NCW Virtual Book Club which does have a Zoom chat on Thursday, but it is unfortunately fully booked already. However, you can still take part by jumping onto the Discord community chat. You can find a link to that in the show notes. You can also join us on the 26th of May for a virtual book club discussion online via Zoom. A small group of us will be talking about A Line Made by Walking. It's free to sign up, so just visit the website now and book your place. If you enjoyed this podcast, and if you've got this far, then I'm going to assume that you did, please do rate, review and subscribe to it because it helps other people to find it in various podcast libraries. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.